everybody, Scott Burnside back again for another edition of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. We're stepping outside our comfort zone today. I know, <laughs> I can't see him, but I know Pierre Lebrun is actually floating somewhere in the Muskokas. I hope he's got sunscreen on. I sent him a couple notes, but uh, he is off the grid for the next few weeks, which means that we have, in fact, signed a top free agent co-host, Frank Cervalli, senior hockey writer at TSN Sports, also president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Frank, thank you for joining us. How's it feel? Like, I know, is this like when you get called up from AAA Harrisburg and like this is that kind of moment for you? Making it to the majors? I've been here before though, Scotty. Yeah, I know, but still, you know, not in this. You're in Pierre's seat now, and I wonder if that, you know, it adds a little pressure for you. No pressure. Um, the seat probably feels a lot less pressure, uh, <laughs> literally. And I was going to ask you, how, like you said, he's floating, but how do you know? Like, uh, listen, like, are you are you sure? He's a very buoyant man. There's no question. You know that. Uh, it, what are you is... saying? He's he's full of a lot of hot air. No, I'm just saying that he's very buoyant, that uh, I'm okay. sure and he may have a flotation device or two. And in fact, he told me and he may have told you as well um, that he's they they have like a pontoon boat and um, and his lake is is gorgeous. So I, I'm I'm certainly jealous that he is uh, taking some well-earned R&R to float around. And, you know, the big this is a big deal for Pierre because uh, you and I are taping this on. Uh, the day before Canada Day, and of course, July 1st, Pierre has been lobbying for years to get the NHL to change their dates for free agency because he always has to work on Canada Day. Well, you know, circumstances being what they are, he's now able to enjoy a rare Canada Day off. So um, that that brings us to, to you. So I've, I've been curious because I, I watch insider trading all the time and, and you're part of the, the rotation there. What's it been like to do those segments so remotely and like have the like the interplay to me seems very natural and and uh, it doesn't look like it it's changed much for you guys but I wonder what it's been like when you're on the opposite end of those squares trying to you know trying to to have some some give and take and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been a little bit different that way. I mean. For me, I'm used to the fact that I'm in Philly instead of being in the Toronto area where everyone else can co- sort of drive into the studio. For me, I've always been doing it from home for the last five years. So that's not really any different. But the fact that everyone is connecting individually, I think it does take away from a little bit of that give and take. So I think you kind of have to measure it out and say, OK, you know, this guy's going to talk for X number of seconds. And then, you know, that Dregs is coming next or whoever it is. And he's going to have his point. And so you just try not to talk over each other. And I think, you know, what stands out for me more than anything is the incredible job that our people have done editing it all together Um, because we're working remotely, but now a lot of them are also working remotely from their homes as well, trying to edit and piece all this together uh, sometimes using their own equipment and computers. And so it's kind of been amazing to see how the TV side of it mobilizes and, is all coming together and it's sort of been quite seamless you know when you see the finished product yes you know that we're working from home but i don't think there's been any sacrifice in terms of the quality uh that people have come to expect from those type of segments 
Yeah. Well, if I thought there had been a decline in quality, I would hardly be in a position to say so, right? Because you're here and you're right. You're listening to me. So why? I couldn't even say that. But no, I've continued to enjoy them. And you know what? It's I, I don't know what it's like when you are doing those segments. And I tell this to Pierre every week when we tape is that I look forward to these moments. Like they're, for me, they're a touchstone for, you know, something that approaches normalcy. We talk about whatever the news of the day is. And, you know, we'll talk about uh, your job with the PHWA, the Hall of Fame. We'll talk uh, the draft lottery, touch on some mm-hmm. Hub City stuff. But I wonder, is it the same? Like, do you... Is it the same for you? Were you like, okay, I got insider trading today, and that's like a normal thing in an abnormal time? Yeah, I think there's certain, you know, like you said, milestones that mark the day of the week. You know, every Tuesday and Thursday, whether I'm in it or not, there's a new insider trading that's coming out that um, there's lots of prep work that goes into that. So you see the group text and everything that um, is connected to that. And just the hunt, the the daily hunt on those days specifically to make sure that you have everything in line. You know, this has been a difficult thing to cover this return to play format, these hub cities, this uh, everything that's gone into this plus the CBA negotiations. It's really felt like, which I'm sure, you know, well, covering a lockout Uh, you're dealing with both the NHLPA significantly and the NHL. And it's, it's been sometimes difficult to parse some information and to make sure that what you're getting is totally accurate. Uh, and so, you know, you're right. Those days, you know, you know, Tuesday and Thursday because you're having insider trading and that helps sort of mark your week when everything runs together. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's so fluid, right? I mean, I think the, you know, last week it looked very much like we were looking at hub cities in Vegas and Vancouver and then, really turning on a dime with the issues over how the NHL was going to or wanted to treat testing during the uh, the return to play and in the bubble uh, situation uh, being at odds on some level with the BC Ministry of Health. And now all of a sudden we're in a completely different mode with that. And I think it, I mean, you've covered lockouts as well, but my sense is that this is because there's so much involved and because so many things are interconnected, whether it's the return to play protocol, the hub cities, the negotiation of a CBA and all those moving parts that it it's way more fluid than if you go back to the 12-13 lockout. Like it, it just seems like a completely different beast to me. Well, because in the 12-13 lockout, you're dealing with just one release, one situation. This, you've got a lot of different things coming together. You've got, you know, protocols for training camp, then you've got to set up this bubble and the safety and, and lifestyle questions that come with that. Um, you know, you've got trying to figure out where these cities are going to be, what makes sense, where can the regulations work in your favor, uh, where can the money work in your favor with regards to the Canadian dollar exchange rate. And then on top of that, you're trying to negotiate a CBA because you really can't return to play without working out some sort of deal on the side because of the amount of money that the players owe the owners based on this 50-50 split, you know, if they don't work out a new CBA extension, then technically according to the document, that money is supposed to come off the cap for next season. So that's why these these things are linked. And so when I think of it in my head, I I kind of think about it um, like getting a, a car that was in an accident, which would be the pandemic, 
getting all these new parts potentially from different makers and cobbling it all together by duct tape to think or to hope that you can get this season back on the road. And there's so many different things, you know, a fender falls off or a mirror falls off and you got to get it all glued back together in order to get back on the ice. I think that's a great analogy. It's like that old Johnny Cash song, you know, the guy where Johnny Cash sings about uh, taking the Cadillac parts out one at a time from the factory and building it at home. I think it's called One Piece at a Time. But uh, anyway, I show my age there. Sounds like a good song to listen to in a bar in Vegas. <laughs> I have to check and see if my uh, jukebox app will uh, can lead us to a good spot, yeah, a good safe That's spot Pierre's in Vegas. Job. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Um, I'm curious, though, just before we get to some more hockey stuff, um, with your role at TSN, it's it, I mean, it's changed pretty dramatically, right? I mean, you're an old ink-stained wretch like I was an old ink-stained wretch who come out of the, mm-hmm. the Philly papers. But you're like you were a you're a big television presence uh, on TSN and I wonder what that adjustment's been like for you. Do you know and I wonder if you when you're out uh, on the road and whether it's uh, covering playoffs or wherever you are, GM's meetings, board of governors, all the things that you do on the road, yeah it, have you got to a point now where people are, you know, and it happens when we're with Pierre, with Chris Johnson, uh, where people recognize you because you are such a prominent fixture now at TSN uh, on the air. Has, what's that all been like for you in terms of learning that skill and maybe, you know, having to um, adjust to, to being a, 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 I use my air quotes here, a celebrity? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that that qualifies as celebrity. Um <laughs> It's That's been, hockey. It's Canada. <laughs> I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. You know what's been a funny adjustment? I did a lot of TV on the the Flyers regional network when I covered the Flyers in Philadelphia. And I was recognized more there, just living and working in Philly at different places I'd go to eat or go to a bar or wherever. I was recognized more then than I have been now working at TSN. And part of that's just because I'm not always in Canada and that's the only place you can see it. And I do end up, you know, running into someone here or there that says, Hey, you look familiar. And we just have a nice little conversation, but it's, it was strange to kind of go the other way. Like I end up doing more TV and, you know, end up running into people less, which certainly no complaints about um, from my end, but it's just funny to, to see that and think that. Um, but the adjustment has been, I think, kind of seamless, like, um, because I had some of that experience, I was able to step in and maybe do a little bit more than I was initially counted on to do. And, you know, it's been a work in progress too. Like I also got there and realized I wasn't very good at it or wasn't as good as I thought I could be. And so there were a few moments where I was incredibly nervous or, uh, trying to, you know, I guess in my own sense, piece it all together, hold it all together with that glue or duct tape. And it's worked out in five years, you know, the experience has been there and uh, you get adjusted. And I think part of it is I've had great teammates who have helped kind of coach me along the way and great people that I work with um, because they've all really helped me adjust and they make you feel like you're part of the team or and as important as anyone else. Yeah, it's you know what Pierre and I talk about this, and I mean, listen, the, the hockey writing fraternity for me is, um, 
you know, it's just, I, to me, it's a special group. And, uh, you know, as you get, you, you do it longer and as you get older, um, I think I've come to appreciate um, the camaraderie and, and the group dynamic, uh, even though you may be competing against each other, that there is, I, I think there is a real uh, collegial atmosphere about it. But, you know, I mean, television is, it's a different thing, right? I mean, sometimes egos are, are are a real part of uh, of what goes on in the business, but I, I I've always been struck by, you know, listening to you and Pierre and Bobby McKenzie and Darren Dreger. My sense is that there really is a, you know, that there is a a feeling about the collective as opposed to mm-hmm. well, how much airtime am I getting? And I wonder, you know, if if that is true, if it's come as a surprise to you, or if if maybe there have been things that. Uh, about doing that kind of job, which is so important, especially in Canada, that maybe you didn't expect it would be that way. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think you go in thinking that it will be because by the nature of it, like you're narcissistic enough to think that you should go on camera and people should care about what you say or what you think. Um, so that there's maybe an inherent part to that, but I haven't found that in any way, shape or form with the guys, not only that I've worked with, with teammates at TSN, like we're all, I think really tight and, and get along so well. And we do care about that collective in terms of if it's getting a piece of news, making sure that our team is the first one to have it. We don't really care who the guy is that gets it. Uh, We just want to make sure that we're, you know, winning. And in the other sense, like just from the guys that I've gotten to know at Sportsnet, um, you know, they're all great guys as well. So, we, you know, there is that it's not exactly the same, um, I guess, fraternity as being a hockey writer. And I don't know that anything quite compares to, you know, slogging it out on your keyboard late in some city where you've been on the road for 30 days uh, and then immediately going to the bar after and then kind of comparing notes the next morning when you wake up and see how you did against your buddy when you read his story. Um you know, I think it's a little bit more friendly um, in the writing world and a little bit more competitive in the TV world. But uh, that said, I mean, I have really yet to run into anyone that um, goes against any of those narratives. And and frankly, if you if they do, it seems like you don't last very long. I think that's probably fair, right? I mean, I, and maybe that's I mean, maybe that's a good thing, and and I I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I've sort of been out. I I, I don't do much television anymore, so it's sort of I'm sort of outside it. But it is, it is interesting because it is it's intensely competitive, but it also, you know, it involves people who've known each other for a long time and have really strong relationships outside the business. So and a healthy that. amount of respect, which I think is really important. Yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, now you mentioned the. Uh, being a uh, hunched over a keyboard late at night, working deadline as the president of the PHWA, you have just come through, and I speak from a little bit of experience, having been the PHWA mm-hmm. president for three years. Uh, I found the voting, the time of awards voting, among the most stressful, really at any time. Like, you know, any time, uh, you know, regardless of playoffs, Olympics, all that kind of stuff. I found awards voting as a PHWA president very stressful because you want to get it right. There are a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, especially given the pause, given the dynamics and the landscape going into the voting, um, you know, which came sort of, you know, 
not out of the blue, but it just, okay, now we're going to vote. And I wonder what that process was like for you. And maybe, um, you know, if there were things that, that stick out for you about this year's voting, given the unusual circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a warrior in general when it comes to that, because like you said, you want to, this reflects on the organization. It reflects on you and you want to make sure that you're always putting your best foot forward and you're proud of the effort that, you know, you put in to make it all go. And that's not for credit. It's just to kind of make sure that it's kind of CYA, make sure that, you know, there's no blowback the other way. And so this year I was just more nervous than usual because, you know, in this case, it was my second time kind of going through it. But in terms of the way this worked out, you know, you're worried that people check out during the pandemic. They're not seeing their email. We've had people that have been laid off. We've had people that have been reassigned from sports to news. We've had people that have been reassigned from hockey to football because they know that their team is going to go a long time before playing again if you're one of the seven teams that didn't make the play. And so I'm kind of worried about all those things at once, in addition to the fact that it was so strange because we usually vote in the last weekend of the regular season. You know, everyone's dialed in. In this case, it had been so long since anyone had seen a game. I wondered if anyone would kind of push aside the ballot and say, look, you know, I haven't seen hockey. I'm not going to vote or I'm not going to take it seriously. And we woke up on the morning that votes were due and ballots were due. And I got an email from the NHL saying, you sent out 175 ballots and we've only received 87 so far. (laughs) And... I got to tell you, there was a pit in my stomach saying, man, we need to make sure and mobilize. And I, you know, with the help of Chris Johnson and Emily Kaplan, our VPs and Elliot Friedman, who herds our broadcasters for us that we invite to vote every year. I just helped, you know, shared the list with them and said, hey, let's make sure that we individually split it up and contact these people that haven't voted yet to say, you have until 5 p.m. to get your ballot in. And, you know, a lot of people had just put in the extra time and wanted to, we're deadline people by nature, right? Like 5 p.m., like we push it to the limit sometimes with our stories. And so it would be no surprise for voters to do that, but you're still nervous because you want to make sure that you get as many people to vote as possible. And we ended up with I think 172 out of 175 that turned in ballots. So the three people that didn't vote this year, um, that's a pretty normal number. Some years it ranges anywhere from five to six. And our protocol that's been voted on by members, as you know, has been if you don't turn in a ballot, there's consequences. You won't be able to vote again, certainly next season and perhaps a number of years, uh, because we want people who care and take it seriously. This is a privilege and an honor and if you don't, then you shouldn't be getting that same privilege. Yeah. So, I, and I don't know the answer to this, but uh, have has the league indicated to you uh, their plan for rolling out the award winners? And I know during the 12-13 season, which of course was the last lockout um, during the 13 finals, I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they just, they they ran sort of video announcements rolling out different awards over the course of a week or so. Um, And that's how those awards in 13 got um, revealed as opposed to an actual award ceremony. Do you have a sense of the timing and how it will be revealed uh, this summer or 
fall? No sense yet. (laughs) The league is still working through it, and I think it's on their list. But given all that they've been dealing with with the hub cities and trying to get this off the ground, you know, that's obviously been back burner for them. So my understanding was that they, you know, if they could, they wanted to roll it out one award per night at some point during the Stanley Cup playoffs whether that's in the Stanley Cup final or in the first round or second round, I'm not sure. But that, I think, was what they wanted to do to try and you know make sure that these awards are given their proper due in a year that you can't have a legit award show. Right. Um, uh, what else? Uh, I want to ask you about the draft lottery. I was just curious. I have I, I got to tell you, I loved every minute of it. And I loved, I loved that at the very end, there it's like the cliffhanger, right? It's the end of a you know a television season, and there's a cliffhanger, and you got to keep hanging around to find out uh, how it's going to play out. But I, I wonder what you, you know, if you in terms of responding to your reporting or talking to people in the league, is there a consensus on? gee, that was terrible, or are people kind of zen about it because, hey, what? how else did you expect it was going to turn out? It's 2020. Well, that and, like, also the fact that it's 2020, like, I think people are just find a way to be angry about everything. Um, and in this case, there were certainly a significant number of people that were worked up about it, you know, in the league, working for teams, general managers, etc. But I love it. Like I think what this does is it makes the the play-in round so much juicier than it already was. Like it was already going to be fascinating with a five-game series to see who goes on to get in the playoffs and gets a chance to win the Stanley Cup. I just don't understand the argument against this. If you wanted to say, okay, wait and conduct the draft lottery in October or whatever, August after you've decided the winners and losers of the playing round. I understand that. But in this case, what happened was Team E or any team below a certain threshold, one of the non-seven play-in teams, you know, they're just a placeholder for a team that would have normally missed. And in this case, that team that won in that spot this year based on points percentage would have been the Winnipeg Jets. And so... What you're doing is you're giving a team that, you know, either likely would have made the playoffs or just had been close and didn't make it a chance in the lottery. And in this case, if you're, you know, people will complain if the Pittsburgh Penguins lose in the playing round and win this pick. But for me, there should be some compensation going to the Pittsburgh Penguins if, in fact, they missed the Stanley Cup playoffs now because they had the fifth best record in the league this year. And in any year, that would get you in the playoffs. So if you aren't making it, you deserve something in return. And in this case, that's a 12.5% chance at the number one pick if you lose in that five-game series. Same thing for the Montreal Canadiens, the Winnipeg Jets, any other team that is right on the bubble and loses. There's always those teams in every single draft lottery that has a minuscule chance to win the pick. And in this case, one of those teams happened to do it this year, and it just happened to be the first time ever, and it happened to come in a year that the collective placeholder teams 
had a 24% chance or 24.5% chance to win that pick. So the drama was incredible. It makes the play-in juicy. And it makes this next draft lottery that's going to take place must-see TV. Like, I'm not really seeing the downside of it. People say the NHL has embarrassed itself. I don't look at it that way at all. The job of a professional sports league, aside from maintaining integrity, is to entertain. And that's what we have here. <laughs> I'm completely with you. But I will say this. I will, And I understand, I understand the, the, the motivation to have this discussion and to write about it and talk about it. But I got to tell you, this whole notion of, would you rather have your team lose a play-in round to get a uh, a one-in-eight shot at Alexis Lafreniere as opposed to actually winning and going into the technically into the first round of the playoffs? There is, like to me, there is no more specious a an argument or uh, a discussion than that because to me, if there's any team, any coach, any GM. Even if you're a team like Chicago and Montreal, which would, in theory, have the longest odds of, of winning that best-of-five playing round, no one connected with either the Canadians or the Chicago Blackhawks want anything but to win that series and to, and to keep moving forward. And so, I, like, I get it, but I got to tell you, that's now my current pet peeve is, oh, would you be better to lose that playing round? Because I think it's, I think it's garbage. So there you go. I got that off my chest. Well, and I agree with you, and I would say that that's up for the fan base to decide. No GM or manager or coach or anything like that is going to be rooting for their team to lose. But if the fans are, then so be it. Like, that's part of being a fan and what happens. And I'm cool with that. But can I, can we talk about another pet peeve that I have? (laughs) This is, this is what we're here. Since you, this is what we're here for. Since you got it off your chest, I got to talk about. The Hockey Hall of Fame inductions, and it's a shame that we don't have the hat Eric Duhatchik here to chime in, because I am so bothered by people that have an issue with Kevin Lowe being included in the Hockey Hall of Fame in this year's class, and the fact that people say it came at the expense of Alexander Mogilny, or it came at the expense of Daniel Alfredson, and look how much better their career was than Kevin Lowe. Well, This isn't a defense of Kevin Lowe, the person, or the player. This is a defense of the process. Because, first off, say what you will about Kevin Lowe and his career, but we haven't had a a true defensive defenseman inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame since the Secretary of Defense himself, Rob Langway, (laughs) almost 20 years ago. There is room in the Hockey Hall of Fame for true defensive defensemen that happen to win Stanley Cups. I'm not saying we should be letting one in every year, but once in two decades as a special player, much like Guy Carboneau last year was a special player for what he did, there's room in the game for defensive defensemen that are outstanding. And there should be, in my opinion, then room in the Hockey Hall of Fame for a defensive defenseman like Kevin Lowe, who was an integral part of those teams that won uh, on two different sides of the continent in Edmonton and New York. All right, so let me, and I'm with you on in, entirely, and I don't know if you read some of the, the material. Actually, it was Eric Dehatchek's baby. It was a tremendous 
exercise that we um, did at The Athletic in the days mm-hmm. leading up to the announcement of the class of 2020. Um, and because Eric had spent a long time as a member of the selection committee and sworn mm-hmm. to secrecy, but he explained the whole process. And so we've, we had a group of 18, same number as on the selection committee, and voted through, went through the process and voted in our own class of 2020. And there were some similarities, some not. Um, but I'll tell you, it was a learning experience, I think, for everyone because to get to 14 votes out of 18 is not an easy thing. And I, I wanted to ask you then, because the PHWA went through this process three or four years ago where the notion of should all votes be made public. So the transparency of how the writers vote on the major awards. Um, and there was some pushback on it, but I think ultimately the right decision is, yeah, we our votes will be made public when the awards are finally announced. Do you think the Hall of Fame is a different beast? Should we know what goes on behind those doors? Or is there enough justification based on the emotion involved and all of the different things that come into play, who gets nominated or doesn't get nominated, that it's okay the way it is? Or what do you think? I think it's perfect the way it is. Like there's more information known about the process. Like there is so much transparency in terms of the process itself. Go to the Hockey Hall of Fame website and read the bylaws. Everything's spelled out for you. The only thing that people don't know are who is nominated and what those ballots look like and what the discussion was like. And to be honest, you know, I don't know that we need to know those things. We can talk in the general public about and in the media about who the candidates should be just because we think someone is a candidate and wasn't included in that class doesn't mean that they were actually even a nominee. And so when you have people of the qualified stature that the Hockey Hall of Fame does, including numerous Hockey Hall of Fame inductees themselves that are on this committee, the only way to really have true and frank discussion is to keep that discussion private. And so the nature of that, you know, I wouldn't, it's not fair to the people that are on that selection committee that are having that debate back and forth. If such and such player is a Hall of Famer um, that's making that argument for or against, then it's like, well, this person has an ax to grind against that person. And when it's really not the case, it's just, this is the nature of the conversation. And so, you know, to preserve the, the openness and frankness of that conversation. And in addition to that, to preserve and protect the people that are on that committee, I think it works exactly as it's intended to. People think that it's shrouded in secrecy and it's really just that the debate is confidential because that's, how it needs to be in order for the wheels to keep turning. So um, I like it exactly the way that it is. Now, whether the committee should be expanded more, that's a different discussion. Uh, what you know, Who knows? But I, I think the bar for the Hall of Fame needs to be high, appropriately high, uh, in order to get in. And, and the debate back and forth every year when we get to this week in late June is what makes it so fun. Yeah. All right. So let me ask you, is there someone – that if you were on the selection committee or if you had a, a you know a seat at that table and could could throw your two cents in is there someone that isn't in the class of 2020 that that you feel deserves to be there or that you would wonder gee I wonder why that person didn't get the nod or didn't collect enough votes uh-huh. yeah I think 
a lot of people have made the case for Alex McGillney and, you know, I think his numbers add up, his impact on the game, a 76 goal season adds up, but I don't get worked up one way or the other really about Alex McGillney being in or out. My real issue with the hall of fame has been how goaltenders have been handled. They're so underrepresented in the hall of fame. And again, I'm saying full well that I know that the bar needs to be appropriately high, but there's just number wise in the position. There's so few that have been in when it's the most important position in the game that I think there's a significant adjustment that's needed that you've got a guy like Tom Barrasso who wins Vezinas and wins Stanley cups and goes 14 years in his career between multiple Vezina nominations as a finalist, you know, there needs to be an adjustment there. Tom Barrasso should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. Curtis Joseph should be in the conversation for the Hockey Hall of Fame. Mike Vernon, go down the list. There's a long list of goalies that deserve consideration that for whatever reason, we know it's the most difficult position to analyze in hockey. We know it's the most difficult position to develop and scout, but there needs to be some expertise on the committee that can speak to goalies and their worth and who were the best of a generation to get in the hall. Because then you look back at a guy like Tom Barrasso's Vezina finalists and the guys that he was losing to finishing second and third to every time are guys that are in the hall, the Hashicks, the Brodors, all those type of guys, uh, whoever he intersected with at the time they're in and he's not. And he was clearly one of that class of goalies. Yeah. I think in that there is some of that logic that led to Doug Wilson being part of the class of 2020 after a long, long wait as, you know, one of the greatest defensemen in Chicago Blackhawks history and all those kinds of things. And you're right. I think it's the perspective of, well, who was, you know, when you think about, you know, who he was being measured against every year and, and they're Hall of Famers as well. And I think that's, you know, that's the important part of it too. Maybe over time, the perspective changes and, and it's not like you've lowered your standards. You've just imagined it in a different way, or you looked at it through a different prism. And I, I agree with you on the goaltending. I think it's fascinating. I love the debate. I think Tom Brasso is an interesting figure. Curtis Joseph, you know, the guy, and maybe because I know Chris Osgood a little bit and having covered the Red Wings um, early in my hockey writing career, uh, you know, numbers are, are so impressive for a guy like Chris Osgood. And yet, you know, I think he's one of those guys that gets uh, lumped into, oh, well, anyone could have played goal for you know, Scotty Bowman's Red Wings and had the kind of success that Chris Osgood had. I don't think that's fair necessarily, but I do think he deserves to be in the discussion too. Um, and it will be interesting. That was one of the things during our exercise at The Athletic that Eric DeHatrick brought up was that goalies are underrepresented. And I don't know, maybe people are afraid of them. I don't know. They're generally smarter than everyone else on the team. I don't know what the deal is, but it, it's going to be interesting to see. So let me, So if you had your... Of all the goaltenders that are outstanding right now, is Tom Barrasso your guy? Is Would he be the next guy in line? Yes, he would. There's no question about that. I mean, the the impact that he had uh, right from the very second that he jumped into the NHL, the first goalie to come in drafted from high school and play in the league as an 18-year-old, winning the Calder and the Vesna in that first year, then he follows that campaign up in Buffalo by being 
the runner up for the Vezina the next year. And that year, I'm just looking here. He was runner up to. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> well, yeah, that was Pe- that was Pelly Lindbergh that he was runner up to. Then he had a couple years later. So he broke in in 83, 84, 88. He finished runner up as well. And then in 93, he was runner up. And then again in 1998, he was a third place finisher for the Vezina. So think about that standard of play from 1983 to 1998, where he goes all that time and is a finalist one, two, three, four, five times for the Vezina, winning one. To say that he's not one of the best goalies of his generation, I don't know how you could make that claim, especially the fact that he won back-to-back Stanley Cups. Like He would be the guy for me, if you're going to start working on the goalie class, he's the first guy to go in. Well, I hope Tom Brasso's listening, and I hope that if he goes in next year that he remembers this conversation and, and seeks you out to buy you a great big giant beer or a nice glass of red or something along the way. So I'm in. Uh, yeah. All right. We're just about done. Just about out of time. You've been an exceptional guest and visitor today. Um, no one's ever said you though, that before. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I thought I'd, I bet you, I bet they have, but maybe just when you're leaving. Um, I wanted to ask you though. You, you and I were chatting just before we started the tape, uh, talking about the play-in rounds and who knows what the media presence will be like if there is any. Uh, if you, if there was one. If there is one play-in series that you would love to be Ooh. in the building, right? You just want, I want to be, I'd like to be there to see how that unfolds. What, what play-in series are you most jazzed about? Hmm. Now you're making me look up the matchups. And there's a lot of really good ones, I'll tell you that. I know, um, yeah. You know, I would have to say that I'd like to see Pittsburgh and Montreal. I know that we talked about it, but if Carey Price is dialed in and it's a short series and he can steal, all you need him to do is steal you one, I think, to really create or plant a seed of doubt. And Pittsburgh was so good this year, but I wonder for a team that's had so much success that maybe in a year where you question not the integrity of the Stanley cup, because I think whoever wins this year, it's going to be so impressive because what, you know, there's a chance that you'd have to win five rounds in order to do it. And given all the circumstances, living in a bubble, all that, it's going to be so impressive. But if you feel like you're the Pittsburgh Penguins and you feel like this year is going to be different, that there's an asterisk attached to this year and you're just not in it the same way because you've already got three, I don't know. Maybe you're not as emotionally invested and, you know, that seed of doubt is created and you say, hey, we'll take our chances getting Lafreniere at a certain point if you're down uh, by, you know, down two to one in the series or whatever it is. And the other team just needs one more game and you can get out of the bubble and go home. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's in play. I don't know what that's going to be like. That'd be the one that I'd like to be in the building for. But the other one that's going to be really good, I think, is going to be Calgary and Winnipeg 8-9. Uh, that's a classic Canadian clash. And you've got a Winnipeg team that was really just starting to motor at the, the end, um, getting it together, getting healthy. Um, they're going to be really interesting to watch. And there's certainly some pressure on Calgary 
with that core and the way that their contracts are structured to really make some noise. And if they don't, that team is probably going to be dismantled or certainly look different heading into next season. So there's pressure there and there's certainly going to be eyeballs with two Canadian teams going head to head. Well, you know, it's so funny because we, I think there is this, this thought that with Connor Hellebuck, I think for a lot of people, a uh, uh, Vezina Trophy favorite, uh, if not the you know definite front runner, um, and the way that that Jets team is built and toughness, and I know their blue line's not what it what it should be or what it was, but I, I'm amazed at how there people lots of people are uh, have <laughs> are very down on Calgary, and I think part of it is, you know they. They showed so poorly against Colorado in the first round last year. They there were lots of ups and downs. You know the coaching change early in the season and uh, all of those things. There is a I, I think people are dismissive of Calgary, and yet there's so much. There's like really lots of interesting pieces there. And I'm with you, Frank. I think like this is an important. This this is an important moment for Calgary, for Bradford Living, the GM there, for Jeff Ward, the you know, can he make a case to be the coach there, um, moving forward, all those kinds of things, and and you know Johnny Gaudreau, Sean Monahan. I mean, this is a moment for them, and I, I think you're it's not kids really, really important. You gotta yeah, you gotta show, you something. gotta answer, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's hope that we actually get to. I always ask Pierre this, so this is how we'll we're going to close it out here. I I always like to take Pierre's uh, optimism temperature um, on a scale of one to ten. What's your optimism that the league and the players' association, the return to play committee, that they can get this together, that they can hammer out the ten million details? And that we see some hockey at the very end of July or early in August. That it actually happens. What's your what's your optimism? Scale of one I'm to ten. I'm gonna go a. I'm deciding between a seven and an eight. I'd like to say seven Ooh. and a half. Okay. Because they're so far down the road that it's gonna take something significant at this point, given the motivation from each side, uh, to really blow it up. And I get that this is the week that really the rubber meets the road. That they've got to make a decision. Are we playing or are we not? But I'm still pretty optimistic that this is going to work out. I was 50-50 in the beginning. I was really optimistic at a certain point and then became pessimistic. And I know the numbers are exploding. But I think the NHL is pretty confident that when they can get their bubble set up, no matter what the testing looks like when these players first come back from not being tested, as ugly as those numbers may or may not be, they think that once they get their bubble set up, that it'll be pretty airtight and they'll be able to pull this off. Yeah. I'm with you. And my friend, I hope that we can actually convene at a socially safe distance, uh, likely in, in Vegas. That would be my guess. Uh, hope that I hope your optimism is rewarded. And uh, just before we go, if you're st- uh, scrolling around looking for some other podcast opportunities scott housen the new president of the american hockey league is mike russo's guest this week on straight from the source at the athletic and scott wheeler our national reporter covering the nhl draft he hasn't had much to do uh, lately uh for the athletic he joins craig custance this week on the full 60 at the athletic and we would encourage you as we do every week to check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the athletic app and don't forget to rate and subscribe to two-man advantage on apple 
And if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash twomanadvantage, you'll get 40% off your subscription. And Frank Cervalli, you have done yeoman work today. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, take the rest of the day off. Thanks for coming to hang out. Hey, thanks a lot. My pleasure.